Right, we're in the ordinance of covenanting. This is week 36. Uh, this will be part two of the national covenant. Fourth term of communion that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God. Obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament. That the national covenant and the solemn league are an exemplification of this divine institution. That these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. Fourth term of communion. <clears throat> so, um, we're going to be looking at the second part of the National Covenant. And uh, what we looked at last time was the section that was sworn originally in 1580. Um, it was also called the King's Covenant or the King's Confession or the Negative Confession. It was renewed. Uh, several times it, from 1580 un, until um, until the 1590s. So uh, the last two decades of the um, 16th century saw a, a certain number of um, of um, acts of covenant renewal with respect to this. Uh, national Covenant. <clears throat> Shortly thereafter, in um, 1603, Elizabeth died. She had been Queen of England, the Protestant Queen, and she named for her successor <clears throat> King James VI of Scotland. And at that point, James departed Scotland, and although he still retained rule over Scotland, he now was king of England as well. That was the beginning of the, um, the unitary crown. Right, so prior to that, Elizabeth had been queen of England, James had been king in Scotland. James's rule terminates in 1625 when he dies. And he presided over, uh, after he left Scotland, he presided over a, a very controversial period of time, both in England and in Scotland. And it didn't get better with the accession of his son Charles to the throne, Charles I. <clears throat> the reforming party in Scotland had been struggling against a number of different anti-reformed uh, parties and, and forces including forces that were now coming up from England uh, into Scotland. And so in 1638, the Church of Scotland, certain nobles and others decided that it was time to renew again that national covenant. <clears throat> <clears throat> this time, however, they decided 
um, that when they renewed it, they were going to add a couple of sections, one of which we're going to talk about this week and, and one, Lord willing, next time. Uh, the first section that they wanted was this section before us tonight. It is a legal apologetic for the covenant. And, and what it's trying to do is demonstrate that there's nothing about that covenant that was considered narrow or <clears throat> um, particularly sectarian. Uh, it, there was nothing about it that was contrary to the will of the people. And uh, during his tenure in Scotland, even James VI. So we're going to, and actually they're going to show that this attitude, at least theoretically, legally, <clears throat> this um, this uh, understanding of, of the place of the covenant in Scottish law, in with respect to the constitution of both church and state, that they're not advocating something unusual, uh, out of the main, or in any way derived from some marginal point in Scottish law. Instead, they're advocating uh, a position that was not only held by the majority, but ratified by the entire nation, both ecclesiastically and civilly. <clears throat> so the section that we're going to look at tonight is going to quote a lot of Acts of Parliament. And I don't know, I was unable to find that anyone has ever done this before. I actually went through and collated every one of these Acts of Parliament and corrected some of these Acts of Parliament uh, so that you have the correct Act of Parliament. There were some typos that have have uh, come down, and, and I, I've corrected them. And I've given you in footnotes tonight <clears throat> just some excerpts. I have all of them. If somebody wants them, they can let me know, and I can give them the whole act. Uh, I have another copy with the acts in full, but it would have created another four pages worth of text for tonight. And I'm not going to read through every act of Parliament, but I do want to call attention Number one, to the titles of the Acts of Parliament as we go. And number two, uh, I've put down a few lines from each of these that has something of interest, uh, some point or, or um, uh, some controversial remark, perhaps, that I think we should... Uh, uh, certainly take note of as we go through all of this. And so again, <clears throat> I don't know that uh, this has been done. I, I, none of the books that I have uh, have actually taken the time to show you exactly what all of these acts are. Um, but I, I did compare this with 
the modern um, annals of, of the Acts of Scotland. Uh, they are available, and um, and so I've corrected some dates, I've corrected some numbers, but what I've what I've given you is each act that is actually being cited. All right, and sometimes uh, they cite some of them more than once, and, and the reason is, you know, sometimes there are more than some of these acts are, are actually quite long, <clears throat> although you can't see it so much reflected in your footnotes. <clears throat> but those acts, in, in some of the longer acts, you'll, you'll notice that there are uh, a number of things that are being addressed. And so we, we just don't have time to go through all of the things that they're addressing but I, I want us to look at some of these things before we consider the scriptural or biblical rationale behind each section as we go. All right, so we're going to go through it sort of paragraph by paragraph <clears throat> or section by section and try to address some big theological questions. There are... Uh, a couple of things that happened when they renewed covenant in 1638, and this actually informs, and we'll be talking about this more when we talk about covenant renewal. Uh, but 1638, when we get the national covenant in the form that we have it in our confession book, uh, that is actually uh, that is actually a, a uh, revised national covenant. The first section is the original. And then we have these other couple of sections that we're going to be talking about. Uh, tonight, the section, as I say, is the legal apparatus. It's the legal justification. And what this is, in reality, from a theological point of view, <clears throat> this is um, an exposition of the historical testimony of both the church and the nation with respect to uh, the intention of the National Covenant. Now, what this tells us is when they renewed the covenant in 1638, they expected, as anyone at this time, remember this is pre-critical, pre-modern uh, thinking, and it was pretty straightforward, and that is this. They understood that an oath was to be taken and renewed in the sense that was intended by those who originally both uh, offered the covenant, took the covenant, entered into the covenant, etc. All right, so that this is showing us what the original intent was. All right, these people, <clears throat> and, and by the way, this is drawn up by um, uh, a barrister, okay, part of, of the, in 1638, uh, Archibald Johnson, Lord Waterston, <clears throat> uh, he is, he's, uh, he was a member of, of the, um, uh, they had uh, what was at the time, uh, sort of a, a, a bar association for all the lawyers of Scotland. He was a member of that. 
So it fell to him to draft this portion. And then in the next next week, the section we're going to be looking at was actually drafted primarily by Alexander Henderson. And that's not to say Henderson didn't have a part here as well. But uh, the two of them were preparing this for a covenant renewal. All right. So what we're getting this week is historical testimony. The purpose of historical testimony is to fix the precise intention of the original covenant takers so that when we renew covenant, we do so in the same manner. And, and that's very important because it's, it's often contested as to, you know, well, what was their original intent? Okay. This, this part of the covenant is telling us if we want to know the original intent of the covenanters, look at what they did as they sought to implement things both in church and state. And although we're looking primarily, we're going to be looking at uh, Acts of Parliament, a number of these Acts of Parliament have reference to <clears throat> uh, things that were going on in the church. And so we can see the nature of the legal establishment. All right, and so some of the things, and I pointed this out in the last section, but this becomes clear in a number of the Acts of Parliament in this section. For example, when they talk about the co uh, confession of faith uh, in the Acts of Parliament, they're talking about the Scots Confession of 1560. That, uh, that remained and remains to this day the the um, first confession of the, the Protestant and Reformed Church of Scotland. And unless there's a specific modification that is accepted, for example, in the Westminster Confession, when they, they adopt that later on, that original confession is doctrinally and practically binding. The same goes with the... Um, uh, in, in the church, uh, the first and second books of discipline. In the state, the second book of discipline uh, was ratified. And, and so these things are, are uh, telling us how uh, the church and the church as related to the, to the state, how they were interacting and how these things were being affected. And we see this, again, we see this in these acts of parliament. This proves it was not something done in a corner, but it was done by the whole nation. This is how a nationally established church exists in, rel uh, in relation to the nation establishing it. <clears throat> or giving it establishment. Right. So we'll be talking about uh, some of those things as we go through. But let me begin then reading. This is the second part of the National Covenant. And this is, this is really uh, what is clearly, if you were to look at the whole document as it appeared in 1638, this is a section with all of the legal uh, references, all the legalese and all of that. So 
Like as many acts of parliament, not only in general, do abrogate, annul, and rescind all laws, statutes, acts, constitutions, canons, civil or municipal, with all other ordinances and practique penalties. And that word practique uh, is, is a Scots legal term referring to customary practice in law. Uh, that with all other ordinances and practic penalties whatsoever, made in prejudice of the true religion and professors thereof, or of the true church uh, discipline, jurisdiction, and freedom thereof, or in favors of idolatry and superstition, or of the papistical church, <clears throat> such as now I'm going as I read through these acts I'm just going to give you the titles and I'm going to refer to a couple of things that I've put here um, Act 3 Parliament 1 is this is Parliament 1 uh, and that, that's 1567 this is the act concerning the annulling of the acts of Parliament made against God his word and maintenance of idolatry in any times past Right in this in this act, the three estates of Parliament annulled and declared all acts in time past which were not in agreement with the Word of God and contrary to the 1560 Confession of Faith, null and void. Right, that's the main focus of that act. <clears throat> now there are other things worth noting there, but that's what I want you to to keep in mind. So that's Act Three. Then there's Act. Uh, it says Act 31, it's Act 13 of Parliament 1. Uh, again, 1567, concerning the jurisdiction of the church. And um, that's essentially stating that the jurisdiction of the church that's recognized in Scotland is that of the Church of Scotland and not the jurisdiction of the Roman church. Right? They recognize no foreign jurisdiction in church or in state. So with respect to the church, the jurisdiction of the church is the Church of Scotland. All right, Act 23 of Parliament 11. That's 1587, the ratification of the liberty of the Church of, of God. <clears throat> and that is a reconfirming of the liberty of the Church of Scotland, the Reformed Church, as opposed to the Popish Church. And um, it's reconfirming all statutes and ordinances that are likewise in favor of the Reformed Church of Scotland. And then Act uh, 114 is really 116 of Parliament 12, 1592. That was an act for abolishing of acts contrary to true religion. So, this has to do with, <clears throat> among other things, <clears throat> providing for and defining the purposes of provincial assemblies and presbyteries. 
Again, contrary to the Romish religion. All, right, all of King James VI. That papistry and superstition may be utterly suppressed according to the intention of the Acts of Parliament repeated in the Fifth Act of Parliament 20, again under King James VI. And that Fifth Act... Um, would be against the Jesuits, it's from 1609, against Jesuits, seminary priests, and resetters. That's, resetters is a term that refers to anybody who gives aid and comfort to the Jesuits and the Popish priests. And so, here, not only are they... <clears throat> trying to identify and root out Jesuits and Popish priests, but they're also, and, and they're subject to banishment um, if they don't recant. Uh, those who support them are uh, subject to all kinds of punishments as well. All right, so uh, you have to understand, and this sounds severe to a lot of people, <clears throat> living as they do under authoritative toleration at this point, uh, it may sound severe. Uh, you have to understand that the Jesuits are not simply a religious order. They're a political fifth column uh, that enter countries and their whole purpose is to undermine Protestantism wherever they go. And so these are, pe these are people who are being viewed not simply as religious opponents. These are political subversives. So you have to understand the priests are actually supporting a system that is inherently politically subversive of Protestantism and people who would aid to bet them are equally guilty. And so that's why these laws against them. So <clears throat> all of this leads us to question one. Is it the duty of the magistrate to see the true religion is established by law? And the answer is yes. Begin looking at Isaiah 60, verses 5 and 10. the prophecies, and we're going to see this more as we go, the prophecies respecting the New Testament era is exactly this, that sometime under the New Testament era, kings, magistrates, chief magistrates would in fact uh, lend their support and give aid to the true religion. All right? <clears throat> and if we ask the question, and we're going to come back to this again, but if we ask the question, in what character, right? Is it sufficient for a man simply to be a Christian in his private life, but not in his public life, uh, the answer, the short answer is no, and we're going to come back to this in a moment, and we'll see why. But they understood 
kings as kings. And that means we're talking about a legal establishment because that's what kings do, right? Kings uh, in pass and enforce laws. Right? This is cleared by the following. First of all, it's foretold by the prophet Isaiah that in the days of the gospel, kings shall be nursing fathers and queens nursing mothers to the church of God. Isaiah 49, 23. So, <clears throat> kings are, and, and, and queens are, are to be nursing fathers and mothers to the church of God. They are, in fact, in some sense, uh, it's prophesied they will give their support. They will give their support to uh, the the nurturing of the church, right? Not just the true religion, uh, that too, obviously, but the way they're going to do it is with respect to the church. And, you know, as we're going to see going on, <clears throat> this is, at least it's in some respects, it must be institution to institution, Right? There must be a civil institution supporting an ecclesiastical institution in order for everything that's in, involved in this to be uh, brought to the fore. Right? So that's not to say that they shouldn't be supportive in other ways as well. Right? There should be, of course, a general favorability toward the true religion. It should be reflected in all of their laws. But specifically... It's going to have, uh, they, they have to have a, not just a positive assessment of the true church, but they need to be supportive and nurturing of the true church. Right? Something uh, that they're not commanded to do or be with respect to anything but the true church. All right, two, because Artaxerxes, who was but a heathen king, was very careful to make a decree that whatsoever was commanded by the God of heaven should be diligently done for the house of God, for the house of the God of heaven. Uh, look at Ezra seven twenty three. Seven verse twenty three. Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Yeah. So the idea here is that whoever wouldn't obey the law of God and the king was to be punished speedily. Ezra seven twenty five and twenty six. Now, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thy hand, set magistrates and judges, which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God, and teach you them that know them not. Whoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of thy king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death or to banishment or confiscation of goods or to a prison. Right, so that attitude on the part of the king <clears throat> was viewed by Ezra as a singular mercy, and for that singular mercy, Ezra then blesses the God of his fathers who'd put such a thing in the king's heart. Look at Ezra 7, 27 and 28. 
Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, and hath extended mercy unto me before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes. And I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. And we see a similar thing Nebuchadnezzar did when he made uh, a like decree in Daniel 3.29. Verse 29, Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and the houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. And the like we read of Darius in Daniel 6.26 and Ezra 6.10-12. to My kingdom then turned into fear before the God of Daniel. Praise the living God and steadfast forever his kingdom, that which will not be destroyed in his dominion to the end. As we're saying, they may offer sacrifices of sweet because the God of heaven and Also, I may have to alter this So what's interesting about all of those cases is they involve heathen kings who, on behalf of the true church, begin to enact laws. We see a hint at um, how this is to be viewed, because the fact is the church at that time blesses God, thanks God, that the magistrate is moved in that way toward the true church. There's nothing peculiar or typical about what they're doing in this respect. What they're doing is moral. And there is attention called to it, and it is recorded with uh, a general approbation in the Bible. And so we, we see from that that there is an approbation awaiting all the Gentile nations who in all times would behave in this manner. <clears throat> Three, because the Supreme Magistrate is to be keeper, a keeper of both tables of the law of God, 2 Kings 11.12. <coughs> and he brought forth the king's son and put the crown upon him and gave him a testimony. And they made him king and anointed him and they clapped their hands and said, God save the king. Right, so he's to take, uh, take heed to, to see that uh, the first table, which relates to religion and our duty to God, and also the second table, which relates to righteousness and our duty to our neighbor, that both be kept. Uh, look at Deuteronomy 17, 18, and 19. Okay, so 
if we understand <clears throat> that the, the uh, Supreme Magistrate is to uphold not just the second table of the law, uh, laws respecting man's duty to man, but that he has an obligation to the whole law. Right? Remember that the Ten Commandments is a summary of God's law. All right, it is a summary of that moral law of, of that God has uh, set in the creation, and so it's necessary that he keep both tables, not just one. <clears throat> Fourth, Scripture exhorts magistrates to the service of the Son of God. Look at Psalm two, verses ten to twelve. So this this is an exhortation and a command to the rulers of this world to lay aside the enmity and opposition that they've managed against Christ and his kingdom and ultimately to do homage and service to him. And again, if we look at Isaiah 60, verses 3, 10, and 11, uh, we see this to be the case. 60, verse 3, Gentiles shall come to thy so we we know that when the Gentiles flow in, uh, part of the prophecy is that uh, their their kings will also do homage. And throughout uh, the history of, of the Christian era, we've seen this off and on. We've seen um, from, from Ethiopia uh, to the European nations uh, to uh, some of the nations in the Pacific and uh, even to various um, uh, scattered kingdoms around the world that there has been this concern <clears throat> most nations historically have actually understood that the, the uh, chief magistrate has something to do, some obligation, some kind of, of um, uh, duty with respect to the true religion. All right, if the question is asked, though, in what character are they to serve Christ? I'll look at Isaiah 62. Two. Isaiah 62. The Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory, and I shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Yeah, so the kings will see thy glory, but, you know, in what character are they to serve Christ? Right? And we can answer that by proposing another question, and that is, in what character did they oppose him? Uh, look at Isaiah 52, 15. Isaiah 52, 
shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Yeah, so here again, uh, this idea of kings. And, and so then the question is, wasn't it in their public character as rulers? Isn't that how they opposed him? And isn't that how they're going to serve him? Right? Isn't that really what's in view here? Look at Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11. All right, so um, in their national, or I should say in their official capacity, not simply as men, but as Christian men in their official capacity, they are to be proactively uh, serving the Lord and his Christ. Now, fifth, sometime after the apostasy, it's prophesied the kingdoms of this world will turn to Christ in their national capacities. Look at Revelation 11, 15. And I think this the sixth point here. Apart from this, how can these prophecies of old ever have accomplishment? Uh, if we look at Isaiah 45, 4 and Jeremiah 4, 2, uh, this might be a little clearer. Isaiah 45, 4. For Jacob, my servant, saying, I have even called thee by the name of surname Jeremiah 4, verse 2. And thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in Judgment and righteousness, and the nations shall bless themselves with him, and in him shall glory. Yeah, so the nations as nations in their corporate capacity, as represented in their official chief magistrates. That's what's in view. And now going back to what we just covered in the National Covenant, um, was there anything wrong with what they did here? Was there anything unscriptural or was there anything contrary to the word of God? And I think we have to answer no. You know, that that the legal section here is already showing us that they did exactly what the Bible would have them to do. Right? They were, were very clear. They want to root out false religion. They want to secure the place of true religion. They want to remove any one or anything that is going to uh, create a tendency for them to slide back into popery, right? Depart from uh, or apostatize from Protestantism. These are all good biblical things to do, and we can see. And, and again, I didn't give you the, the whole of the Acts. I have them, um, and when you read them, there really isn't anything in them <clears throat> that is uh, contrary to or apart from uh, either express scripture or the general rules of scripture and Christian prudence. Right? They're, they're very careful in what they're doing. They're trying to reform a nation, and they're trying to do it uh, both civilly and ecclesiastically. 
<clears throat> so let's continue with this section of the National Covenant. And to that end, they ordain all papists and priests to be punished with manifold civil and ecclesiastical pains as adversaries to God's true religion, preached and by law established within this realm, Act 24, Parliament 11, King James VI, and again, um, Act 24, Parliament 11, that's 1587, concerning the trial and punishment of the offenses of the adversaries of the true religious of the true religion uh, presently professed within this realm. And um, uh, that that um, gets into uh, what do they want done, and th this is uh, where we're getting into one of these areas that are, are controversial today, but the fact is they want all sayers and hearers of Mass profaners of sacraments to be identified uh, after uh, a period of, of basically trying to reason with them. If they're not going to be reclaimed, uh, the fact is that they want them to be, in, in some respect, punished. Right? You have to remember, the, the idea here is they want to root out Romanism, right? Uh, this is Romanism is a danger, not only uh, religiously but politically, and they they understand these things to be wrapped up in some sense together. So. <clears throat> The fact is, then, uh, they go on to say King James VI, uh, these are to be treated as common enemies to all Christian government. Uh, and here, Act 18, Parliament 16, 1600, which is a ratification of the Act regarding Jesuits, priests, excommunicate, and trafficking priests. Uh, and this is, this is um, against all of these people. They're viewed as common enemies of all Christian government. They're commanded to depart out of the realm under pains, if they remain under pains, uh, that will that they will suffer if they don't leave. And then Act 47 of Parliament 3 of King James, excuse me, um, this is as rebellers and gainstanders of our Sovereign Lord's Authority, the Act 47, Parliament 3 of King James VI. And that is uh, from 1572, which is actually 1573 in the the new calculation. There was a, a regaging of the calendars in the 1500s. And uh, so it's in our accounting, it'd be 1573. Uh, this is called Concerning the Disobedient Who Shall Be Received to Our Sovereign Lord's Mercy and Pardon. And um, here again, these are people who are punishable as rebels because they, they won't give confession and make profession of the true religion. They've made defection from their due obedience owed to their sovereign Lord. And they go on to say they're to be admonished by um, they're to be admonished by the ministers of the churches, but if they won't respond to that, they're to be punished. 
And finally, um, uh, so as rebels, rebelers and gain standards of our sovereign Lord's authority, uh, Act 47, Parliament 3, King James 6, and as idolaters, Act 104, Parliament 7, King James the 6, and that Act 104, Parliament 7 is 1581, which is an act passing in pilgrimage to chapels, wells, and crosses, and the superstitious observing of diverse other popish rites. And they talk in here about um, the various idolatry, including observing festival days of the saints and setting of bonfires or singing of carols within and about churches at certain seasons of the year. Right? These are all punishable under the law. Okay, so uh, we'll we'll talk about you know there's there's a big um, discussion that arises that has to do with whether or not uh, the um, and, and this comes up particularly with respect to the Psalm League and Covenant in the 19th century whether or not uh, they intended to actually punish people in their bodies and in their possessions. And I think if we look at the Acts of Parliament here in the National Covenant, the answer is quite succinctly yes. Uh, did they actually carry it out with respect to a lot of people? Let's put it this way. When the threat is real and they see it in execution... It doesn't take very many examples before everyone else says, I don't think I want to go down that path, right? That's the bad path. And as in the case of Ezra, uh, we're going to see in, in, in some of these, uh, uh, and I may have, I may have missed, uh, but I think I noted, it, I put a section from one of them, where they actually call for putting people to death, right? There are certain things, if they're persistent, you know, that's not the first recourse, but they're talking about, you know, what's at the end of all of this? If, if you persist and you will not be reclaimed, you're unreasonable, you won't leave the realm, you know, but you, you want to undermine what they're trying to do. You, if you want to stay, you're going to die. Okay. Uh, this is, in, in their mind, no small matter. There are plenty of popish countries. You can go be a papist, but not in Scotland. And so, you know, people who want to say, well, that's persecuting. I think if you want to know what persecution is, uh, you need to look at what the papists did to the Protestants at this time. Uh, they didn't give them a chance to go somewhere else. Right. And they didn't give them a number of warnings. Uh, they would let you recant, and then they would they would uh, they would execute you summarily rather than burn you to death. All right, they're, they're, but it was not uh, it was not so lenient as what they're doing here. What they're doing here is something that's designed to retain the attention of the people and make them recognize this is serious. So, with all of that. Uh, let's look at question two. Should the magistrate punish those who maintain and spread doctrines and practices contrary to the true reformed religion? And the answer is yes. Look at Ezra 7, 25, and 26. 7, verse 25, 26. 
Now, Ezra, as the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand, said magistrates and judges, may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God, and teach ye them that know them not. And whosoever will not do the law of thy God, and will all the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death, or to banishment, or to confiscation of goods, or to imprisonment. Yeah, so we see, we, we see this, we, we also see this in, for example, uh, first of all, uh, the example of Hezekiah, who removed the high places, broke down the images, cut down the groves, breaking pieces of brazen serpent to which the Israelites did burn incense. Look at 2 Kings 18.4. Second, we have the example of Josiah, who made a thorough reformation and made all Israel serve the Lord their God. Look at Second Chronicles thirty-four, thirty-three. Second Chronicles thirty-four, thirty-three. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertain to the children of Israel, and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord their God. And all his days they departed not from following the Lord, the God, the Lord, the God of their fathers. Okay, so, you know, this word in the Hebrew, to serve, uh, la avod, uh, that means he in a manner, in some respect, uh, there is this threat of force. There's an outward force or compelling of them to the pure worship of God. Right? And... That's very much as a servant is forced and compelled to his work. The same word we see used in Exodus 1.14. 1 verse 14. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. Yeah, and, and so it's, that's not to say that, that there is uh, necessarily rigor for everyone. But there is this outward compulsion, right? There is this outward uh, idea. You're, you're not going to go any further than this. We have rules. We have regulations. You're not going to wander about and blaspheme. You're not going to commit open idolatry and so on. Right, so he, by his royal power and authority, Josiah, kept them in Order forbidding idolatry, commanding them to serve God no otherwise than according to his word. Look at Second Chronicles 15, 12, and 13. <clears throat> and, and I know, you know, this is one of these passages where, uh, again, people get squeamish, but you have to understand that this is... Uh, a very serious matter, whether or not we're going to tolerate open rebellion to the true religion in, in a true reformed nation. Right? If you have a problem with that, uh, you've got choices. Right? Uh, and probably the first and best choice you can make is go somewhere else. Right? But you don't have a right to heresy. 
All right, they entered into a covenant then to seek the Lord God of their fathers, and whosoever should not was to be put to death. Uh, and that, of course, is actually according to the moral law. Look at Deuteronomy 17, 2 to 5. So, this is really a matter of the moral law of God. Okay, there, and, and again, we're not talking about people who are necessarily ignorant or, or um, uh, you know, they just don't know. We're talking about obstinate, open, public profaners and resistors of the true religion. Because every one of these acts of parliament uh, provides for, you know, pulling them aside civilly and ecclesiastically, trying to reason with them. Um, most of them begin with, you know, lesser punishments. You're trying to draw them to a point where they're going to be uh, malleable. <clears throat> All right, third, because whosoever blasphemed the name of the Lord was surely put to death. Leviticus 2416. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, um, blasphemy, again, is a very, very serious thing. And we have to understand that a lot of these popish ceremonies, a lot of these popish rites, uh, are understood by the Protestants to be blasphemy. And I think rightly so, if you understand what's going on. They are blasphemous. Right? They're, not, uh, they're not honoring God. They're, they're contrary. And... Um, uh, anyway, they, so they... Uh, they're really um, uh, doing things which are are so contrary to the uh, moral law that that um, we have to ask ourselves uh, how this could comport with honoring or glorifying the name of God. And, and the Protestants say again and again very clearly these, these things are not. Now this blaspheming was actually piercing through or stabbing the name of the Lord as is indicated in the Hebrew. Uh, the nukev, nukev is, is the word. I want to look at a verse in 2 Kings 12.10 uh, where the same word is used. It's translated blaspheme. So when they saw that there was much money in the chest, 
that was found in the house of the Lord. I'm oh, sorry, is it verse 9? No. Hmm? Yes, yeah, verse 9. Verse 9. The priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it beside the altar on the right side. The right. right. So the, the, yeah, the, the, the word the word for board for boring a hole that's the word blaspheme. The, the idea is that um, blaspheming God is like piercing Him through. Right, and that can be done by maintaining blasphemous errors and heresies. We'll look at Titus three ten and eleven. Is three, ten, and eleven. The man that is inherited after the first and second admonition of death, knowing that he that is such that is such is subverted, and sent to be condemned of himself. So um, the, the fact, you know, is that with all of these things, there is a blaspheming, there is um, an attack on the the um, the name of God and so there's somewhat of this in all of these errors alright and then the, the fourth thing to consider here is this such is prophesied to be carried out by those nations which repent after the period of the apostasy in Revelation 17 16 Revelation 17 16 the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Yeah, so again, after the nations of the earth have repented of their idolatry and so on, the idea is that they're, they're not going to be tolerant of these Romish heresies, these Romish errors. Um, <clears throat> but they're going to uh, seek to suppress them. Right, so the strength of the position is expressed in that penalty of death for the most severe, obstinate, public, offensive, uh, and, and egregious promoters. Uh, it was never carried out um, in in with respect to you know, every single person at the first instance. But it was the force behind it, right? If you if you understand that ultimately they've reserved the right to execute you for this, everything they say up until that execution, you're going to take much more seriously than if you think that the ultimate penalty behind what they're saying is maybe just, you know, say a, a $2 fine. Right, when it, it actually could land you uh, on the you know the gallows or or um, at, at the um, chopping block, uh, that's going to 
you're, you're going to respond to that in a very different way. And so are they trying to put up an outward, uh, an outward, do they want to create an outward atmosphere where certain things are not tolerated? Absolutely. You know, again, <clears throat> I think we have to remember that Romanism is not simply a religious deviation. Um, it's it's a politically a politically subversive movement, and the Protestants understood that. All right, but then when we add to that that there are these egregious sins against God, their position from a biblical point of view should not seem so unreasonable. Again, they weren't just lining everyone up against the wall and shooting them all. Uh, that wasn't what was happening. But the seriousness of the offense is underscored by the seriousness of the penalty that is potentially attached to your uh, violation. Right? All right, let's move on to the next section of the covenant. But also, in particular, by and at tour, that is in addition to the confession of faith, and they're speaking about the confession of 1560, do abolish and condemn the Pope's authority and jurisdiction out of this land and ordain the maintainers thereof to be punished. Um, this is Act 2, Parliament 1, 1567. That's concerning the abolishing of the Pope and his usurped authority. That's when they... Uh, they um, rescinded the jurisdiction of the Pope in Scotland. The Pope had claimed a jurisdiction and they had owned that until then. All right. Uh, Act 51, Parliament 3. Uh, this is from 1572 or 1573 in our reckoning concerning purchase of Pope's bulls or gifts of Mary the Queen, our sovereign Lord's mother. Uh, and, and again, these, these were, um, these were popish, uh, instruments that were meant to absolve you, uh, in the eyes of the magistrate. Um, and they're, they're saying no. Uh, again, the Pope has no jurisdiction. So his, his, um, bulls have no force here. Uh, and and they, they don't have any force on behalf of Mary, who was the Popish Queen, right? The uh, Act 106, Parliament 7, this is in 1581, against fugitives and other papists practicing against the true religion. Uh, and these are, uh, this is, again, um, calling for a reckoning with those who were who were professed subjects of Scotland who were trying to avoid um, avoid their day in court, if you will. Uh, they refused to renounce popery and so on. Act one fourteen, Parliament twelve. Again, we this we've already cited this act, but it's the act for abolishing of acts contrary to true religion from fifteen ninety two. And they go on to 
These are all King James the sixth. And by the way, noting King James the sixth in all of these these Acts of Parliament three and so on. These these are actually accounting, and I noted this in one of the earlier footnotes. These are actually regal countings. Like these are the parliaments. It's Parliament three of King James the sixth, not since the beginning of Scotland. And this is how they reckon the parliaments. Uh, these are his parliaments. And so um, they have they have him as their their um, their time marker, their time signature. <clears throat> anyway, they go on to say they do condemn the Pope's erroneous doctrine or any other ero uh, erroneous doctrine repugnant to any of the articles of the true and Christian religion publicly preached and by law established in this realm. It ordains the spreaders and makers of books and, or libels or letters or writs of that nature to be punished. And um, this would be Act 46, Parliament 3. <clears throat> this is 1572, again, 1573 in our reckoning. Um, and, and the reason for that, and even though some of these are before and after, the difference is this. 1572, if it's 1573, the NS, a new style, that means that that parliament was held in January, February. All right, because in 1572, in the old style, February was the last month of the year. But in the new style, January is the first month of the year. So that's the only time you see that difference here. And it, it they were still reckoning it according to the old style in Scotland. But for us, if we're looking back, um, it's actually the new style because it would have been in a January or February. Anyway, Act 46 of Parliament 3, that the adversaries of Christ's evangel, his gospel, shall not enjoy the patrimony of the church. And that's really telling, uh, telling the people that if you're an enemy of the true reform religion, the money that the public money of the church is off limits to you. You're not allowed to have that. All right, there is a, a, a public, um, a public purse for the maintenance of the true religion, but that is closed to the papists. Act 106, Parliament 7. Uh, that's concerning the trial and punishment of offenses of, of the adversaries of the true religion uh, presently professed within the realm. And then Act 24, Parliament 11, that's again, oh no, sorry, that's uh, Act 106, Parliament 7 is against the fugitives and other papists practicing against the true religion. And then Act 24, Parliament 11, uh, 1587, concerning the trial and punishment of offenses of adversaries of true religion presently professed in this realm. So, <clears throat> Again, <clears throat> they are, uh, and he's showing, Lauriston is showing that they passed a number of acts of parliament, not just in one year, but, you know, we're, we're seeing these are passed from the beginning of the Reformation in 1560, really, uh, or 1567, uh, when, when they start uh, really having these parliaments, these reforming parliaments right up until the 1600s 
Um, and we're going to even see at the end here, uh, there's something even uh, later and closer to when they're renewing the covenant. So for people to say that they intended something else uh, than what these covenanters intend to do when they take it in 1638 is very much disingenuous. Anyway, this leads us to the third question. Should the magistrate suppress all things designed to lead the people under his care out of the truth and study to promote the, the welfare of God's people? And the answer is yes. Look at 2 Samuel 23, 3. 23 verse 3, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So, God would have, um, would have people who rule over his people be people who were, in fact, of not only of uh, generally of of that religion, but of the true religion, right? They did not given over to other things. See, and there should be a, a, a concern to seek truth on behalf of all of the people. That's part of what the magistrate is doing. If you're going to seek justice and judgment, uh, you have to seek truth. But the fear of God disposed Nehemiah, the governor, to seek the welfare of the children of Israel, not only by generously sacrificing the emoluments of his office, but by exerting his authority for preventing the profanation of the Sabbath and issuing his commands and threatenings to those who persisted in its violation. Look at Nehemiah 13, 17, and 18. And I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is this that you do and perform the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon the city? We bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Right, and then in the same religious manner did he act in repairing the house of God, purging it from the defilement which the priest had suffered and in providing for the regular performance of divine ordinances. Nehemiah 13, 19 to 14. <laughs> Yeah, so again, the magistrate, and we we're going to cover this more at the very end, but he's to suppress things designed to lead the people out of his, out of the truth, right? He wants to suppress that, and he has to study to promote the welfare of the people of God. And so, they go on in the covenant to say, um, do condemn all baptism conformed to the Pope's church and the idolatry of the mass and ordains all sayers, willful hearers, and concealers of the mass uh, 
maintainers and resetters. Remember, those resetters are the people who, who aid the, the uh, criminals, in this case, the, the people who are uh, on the run for being papists, closet papists. Resetters of the priests, Jesuits, trafficking papists to be punished without any exception or restriction. Act 5, Parliament 1, that's 1567, concerning, uh, yeah, concerning um, the abolition of the Mass and the punishment of all that hear or say the Mass. Uh, Act 120, it's actually 122, Parliament 12, that's 1592. Um, and that one is... Uh, against the Jesuits, seminary priests, and the resetters. Um, Act 164, Parliament 13. Uh, that's 1593, for punishment of the condemners of the decrees and judicatories of the church. So these are people, uh, if they um, condemn the sentence or, uh, and of the judicatories of the church, uh, they're saying, you know, we're not going to let you Simply ignore what the church is telling you to do. Uh, Act 193, which is really 196 of Parliament 14, 1594, against willful hearers of the Mass. And here they say expressly um, that all willful hearers of Mass and concealers of the same be executed to the death and their goods and gear sheeted, that is, forfeited. Um, Act 1 of Parliament 19, uh, that was in 1607, Act Against Sayers and Willful Hearers of the Mass. So again, uh, they're addressing this problem. Act 5 of Parliament 20, that's 1609, uh, that's an act against Jesuits, seminary priests, and resetters, again. You go on to say, do condemn all erroneous books and writs containing erroneous doctrine against the religion presently professed or containing superstitious rites and ceremonies papistical, whereby the people are greatly abused and ordains the homebringers of them to be punished. Act 25, Parliament 11, um, and that's against sellers and dispersers of papistical and er erroneous books and that's <clears throat> these are people who they're saying if you bring these books back you travel and you bring them back and try to distribute them we have a problem with that right, we don't want these things in our country um, they do condemn the monuments and dregs of bygone idolatry as going to crosses observing the festival days of saints such other superstitious and papistical rites to the dishonor of God, contempt of true religion, and fostering of great error among the people, and ordain the users of them to be punished for the second fault as idolaters. So there you can see they're, they're, uh, the first fault, they're going to warn you that this is idolatry. The second time, they're going to deal with you as idolaters. So Act 104, Parliament 7, again, of King James VI. So <clears throat> that was 1581, against passing and pilgrimage to chapels, wells, and crosses, and superstitious observing of diverse other popish rites. All right, so that brings us to question four. <clears throat> Should the magistrate condemn the monuments of bygone idolatry and punish those who persist in their use? Again, yes, 2 Kings 18.4. 2 Kings 18, verse 4. If you remove the high places and break the 
covered for us the brazen pieces, the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did break did burn incense to it, and they called it Nehushtan. Right. It was the practice of the godly magistrates to remove the remaining monuments of bygone, bygone idolatry and make the people follow after the Lord. Again, 2 Chronicles 34, 33. 2 Chronicles 34, verse 33. <clears throat> this practice, again, is grounded in the moral law of God, which commands that all such remembrancers be destroyed and rooted out. Deuteronomy 7, 5. And thus, then, the prophet of God also prescribes this course to a people who are being reclaimed from their course of apostasy. If you look at Isaiah 30, 22. Isaiah 30, 22. Isaiah 30, 22. So the song also is the covering of thy graven images of silver, and the ornament of thy most <coughs> images of gold. So I shall cast them away as a menstrual cloth, so I shall say unto it, get you hence. So again, monuments of idolatry um, are to be removed. People persist in using them, are to be punished. It's really what uh, is commanded in the moral law. So they're not advocating beyond the justice of the Bible. Uh, they are giving people every opportunity to avoid, you know, the the more serious punishments. Right, by uh, you can confess the true religion, profess the true religion, uh, stop doing what you're doing. Right, and if you really don't like it, um, move. You know, leave the country. We don't want a fifth column. Don't want this um, this uh, underground railroad for papists to to remain. Right, let's go on. And this is a longer section I'm going to read here uh, from the covenant. Uh, like many acts of parliament are conceived for maintenance of God's true and Christian religion and the purity thereof in doctrine and sacraments of the true church of God, liberty and freedom thereof in our national synodal assemblies, presbyteries, sessions, policy, discipline, and jurisdiction thereof, as that purity of religion and liberty of the church was used, professed, exercised, preached, and confessed according to the reformation of religion in this realm. As for instance, 99th Act of Parliament 7, that was 1581. Again, ratification of the liberty of the true church of God and religion, confirmation of the laws and acts made to that effect before. And this is, again, a confirmation of the true Reformed Church of Scotland and a disavowing and, and annulling of any authority or jurisdiction that the Church of Rome might claim in Scotland. <clears throat> and so all of the laws that were passed in favor of the true Reformed Church are being confirmed <clears throat> and all the, the um, laws that had been uh, passed against Popery are also being confirmed. 
in this. And that was probably a law that was passed uh, in in uh, as a result of the taking of the National Covenant the first time. Act 25, Parliament 11. It was 1587. Again, sellers and dispersers of papistical and erroneous books. Again, we talked about that one. That was the one where you know, you're not allowed to disperse popish materials. Right? There, there can't be any outward proselytizing to the Romish religion. It's the religion of Antichrist. Act 4, 114, Parliament 12. Uh, it's actually Act uh, 114, 116. Um, that was 1592. That's the Act for Abolishing the Acts Contrary to the True Religion. And then uh, the Act 160, which is really 164, uh, Parliament 13, 1593, for punishment of the condemners of the decrees and judicatories of the church. Again, uh, you can't just try to um, dismiss what the church is telling you to do. Right? When the church decrees, it has jurisdiction. And Rome doesn't. You can't say, uh, you can't plead Romish jurisdiction, it's not going to work. All right. Um, that's of King James VI. Uh, here, ratified, by the way, he points out by the fourth act of King Charles. This is Charles I in 1633. All right. And that's the ratification of acts touching religion. So those acts are all actually ratified. After James dies and Charles comes to the throne, Charles actually ratifies all of this. So again, they can't, in, in 1638, they can't even say, well, you know, this was all rescinded. It wasn't. This is all legal, on the books legal. Um, so the Sixth Act of Par the First Parliament, uh, that's 1567, concerning the true and holy church, and of them that are declared not to be of the same, uh, that again is a confirmation of the true Reformed Church of Scotland and the Confession of Faith of 1560, right? And Act, uh, the 68th Act of Parliament 6 of King James the Sixth, and that would have been 1579 concerning the true and holy church and of those declared not to be of the same. This is, um, in essence, it's a repeat of the earlier one and a confirming of the earlier act, uh, and he and he notes here that in the year that in the year 1579, in that they declare the ministers of the blessed evangel, whom God of His mercy had raised up, or hereafter should raise, agreeing with them that then lived in doctrine and administration of the sacraments, and the people who profess Christ as He was then offered in the evangel, and doth communicate with the holy sacraments as in the reformed churches of this realm. They were presently administered according to the, the Confession of Faith, that's the Confession of 1560, to be the true and holy Church of Christ Jesus within this realm. So they're very clear about defining what is a true church. And it holds to the, the doctrine and the policy of the Reformed churches. 
And it holds to that confession of 1560. And determines and declares all and sundry who either gainsay the word of the evangel, received and approved as the heads of the confession of faith, professed in Parliament in the year of God, 1560, specified also in the first Parliament of King James VI, and ratified this present Parliament, which is 1579, um, more particularly to express or that refuse the administration of the Holy Sacraments as they were then administrated, to be no members of the said church within this realm, and true religion presently profess, so long as they keep themselves so divided from the society of Christ's body. So again, they're saying, look, there are only two churches, true fall, the true church and the false church. Okay, If you were of the true church, you would be in the Church of Scotland. Because there's nothing here contrary to the word of God or to the, um, uh, the true Reformed faith, as professed by all the Reformed uh, churches throughout the nations. Right? But, you're not, and that shows that you're really not members of this church. You're not really part of what is going on here. So, the subsequent Act 69 of Parliament 6 of King James VI, um, which is concerning the jurisdiction of the church, uh, declares that there is no other face of the church nor other face of religion than was presently at that time by the favor of God established within this realm. Quote, which therefore is ever styled God's true religion, Christ's true religion, true and Christian religion, and a perfect religion, unquote. Right, so this is expressly and pointedly in favor of the Reformed Church of Scotland. They're, they're not middling. You know, they're not trying to cut the difference. Uh, they are on the side of the Reformed faith, and, and they're, they're, they're Protestant, uh, which, by manifold acts of Parliament, all within this realm, are bound to profess to subscribe the articles hereof, the Confession of Faith, to recant all doctrine and errors repugnant to any of the said articles. What articles? Now, Article 4, Parliament 1, which is 1567. This is where they adopt the entire Scots Confession. Right? The church has already adopted it, but now the state adopts this. So if they're looking for an official definition of the Trinity, what they believe concerning the Trinity, they're going to look in the Confession of 1560. Right? What the Reform religion means, it's going to be defined for them there. What a true church is or a false church. And it also has um, a whole section on the civil magistrate. All right, then there's Act 9 of Parliament 1, 1567, concerning those that shall bear public office hereafter. And I, I just put, you know, I just noted one thing here, and that is, as of 1567, if you didn't hold expressly, hold to the true reform religion, you couldn't be in the government. Right? You didn't have a right to believe something contrary and hold civil office. Uh, there's Acts 45, 46, 47 in Parliament 3. And um, 
1572 or 1573 in our reckoning. Those are concerning the true and holy church, where they, um, uh, that they actually, in that one, they actually want an enumeration of people who stopped communicating with the Church of Scotland. They want to know uh, if you are uh, maybe having some qualms. Uh, the second, Act 46, that the adversaries of Christ's evangel shall not enjoy the patrimony of the church. We already talked about that one. And then uh, Act 47, concerning the disobedient, who shall be received to our sovereign Lord's mercy and pardon. So uh, there are some who are disobedient, <clears throat> and they say you can be received to pardon mercy, but, you know, among other things, you need to be penitent, for real. Actually penitent. Right, Act 71 of Parliament 6, concerning the youth and others beyond sea suspected to have declined from the true religion. In this one, um, there were people who were sending their children overseas, papists who were sending their children overseas, to get a popish education in order to avoid... Uh, being instructed in the true Reformed religion. And you had to, um, you had to declare exactly why. If they're, if you're sending your kid overseas to get an education, they wanted to know that it was for something you couldn't, uh, you couldn't gain that education in Scotland somehow. And they want assurances that your child is not going to decline from the true Reformed religion, which means they're probably going to want you to go to uh, Holland or someplace like that where they're Protestants so that you don't get totally perverted by Romanism. Act 106, Parliament 7, against, it's 1581, against fugitives and other papists practicing against true religion. Act 24, Parliament 11, uh, concerning the trial and punishment of the offenses of the adversaries of the true religion presently professed within this realm. Um, Act 123, it's actually 125, Parliament 12, that's 1592. Uh, this is concerning who had not given confession of their faith shall not enjoy the benefit of pacification. So, what this is dealing with the question of how do we deal with these unreconstructed papists? And um, they're, they're basically going to begin limiting uh, the benefits that they're going to be allowed to enjoy in the kingdom as long as they remain in a state impenitent. So they don't want them uh, being allowed to um, uh, just uh, ignore uh, what you know what they're trying to do. They want these people to be responsive and responsible to the reform, and so they're not they're not going to allow them. Uh, simply to have access to all of their their stuff, right? Their 
they've had access, but as we're going to see, in some cases, they were allowed to retain certain property provided that they, they weren't open rebels. But as this goes on longer and longer, the question is, are they really, um, is this really a safe course? You know, or are these people really, you know, they're, they're closeted rebels and they're probably supporting this fifth column. All right, Act 194 and 197 of Parliament 14. It's actually, actually, it's Act 197 and Act 200 of Parliament 14. This is in 1594. The first is regarding satisfaction to the church by Papists, where they, they needed to go to the presbyteries and, and um, appear and let everyone know that if, basically if you were a Papist, you had to register as a Papist. Because they don't want people, uh, they don't want this active promulgation of Romanism, but they, so they want to know, you know, where they are and, and, and uh, perhaps um, uh, they're going to watch what you're doing a bit. And then the other one is regarding a sheets or forfeitures and life rents of excommunicated persons. Right. And so this, um, this was one where they were, they had been granted certain usages uh, for a time under certain conditions and they're beginning to reconsider how much they need to tighten the law, how much they needed to, to, to um, inflict some kind of pecuniary punishment on these people who are still resisting uh, the true reformed religion. All right. These are, again, are all of, from the parliaments of King James VI. Uh, it goes on to say, in all magistrates, sheriffs, etc., on the one part are ordained to search, apprehend, and punish all contraveners. For instance, Act 5, Parliament 1, and that's from 1567, concerning the abolition of the Mass and punishment of those who hear and say the Mass. Act 104, Parliament 7, 1581, against passing in pilgrimage to chapels, wells, crosses, superstitious observing of diverse other popish rites. Act 25, Parliament 11. These again are all of King James VI. And that would have been against sellers and dispersers of papistical and erroneous books. I continues, notwithstanding of the King's Majesty's licenses on the contrary, which are discharged and declared to be of no force, in other words, he, he um, for a time, granted certain permissions insofar as they tend in any wise to the prejudice and hinder of the execution of the Acts of Parliament against Papists and adversaries of true religion. And here again, Acts 106, Act 106 of Parliament 7, which is against fugitives and other Papists practicing against true religion. And Acts, uh, that, that, that's King James VI. And on the other part, in the 47th Act of Parliament the Third of King James, uh, that was concerning the disobedient who shall receive our sovereign Lord's mercy and pardon. So again, there was a, a window <clears throat> where people were given an opportunity to reconsider. And uh, they didn't immediately start hammering everyone uh, who may have been less inclined at the first. But over time, 
this does become more and more political. Uh, there are more and more intrigues going on. And they have to view it in those terms as well. And they are. Anyway, um, it's declared and ordained, seeing the cause of God's true religion and His Highness Authority are so joined, as the herd of the one is common to both. that none shall be reputed as loyal and faithful subjects to our sovereign Lord or his authority, but be punishable as rebels and gainstanders of the same who shall not give their confession and make their profession of the said true religion, that they who, after defection, shall give the confession of their faith of new, they shall promise to continue therein in time coming to maintain our sovereign Lord's authority, and at the uttermost of their power to fortify assist and maintain the same preachers and professors of Christ's religion against whatsoever enemies and gainstanders of the same, and namely against all such of whatsoever nation, estate, or decree, degree they be of that have joined or bound themselves, that is by covenant, or have assisted or assist to set forward and execute the cruel decrees of the Council of Trent, that's that Popish Council, contrary to the true preachers and professors of the Word of God, which is repeated word by word in the Articles of Pacification of per- at Perth, 23rd of February, 1572. And um, the first article of pacification I gave you here in the um, footnote reads this, that all persons who would enjoy and benefit from the pacification should affirm and profess the confession of the Christian faith and true religion of Jesus Christ publicly preached in, this, in the realm and shall to the uttermost of their power be maintained fortify and assist the true preachers and professors of the word of God against whatsoever enemies or against standers of the same of whatsoever nation or decree they have, that, have, that have joined or bound themselves or assisted to execute the cruel decrees of the Council of Trent, which is most injuriously called by the adversaries of God's truth, the Holy League. So they, the Council of Trent was actually a counter-covenant was the Popish Covenant. So this is not just Covenanters on one side and Covenanters on another side. These are two contending Covenanter visions. Trent and the Church of Scotland. Right, so the idea here is very, very simply this. They came to the conclusion after trying for a while that you couldn't possibly be a loyal subject if you weren't of the same religion. Now, this is very important to understand this. And this is something that should have probably been apparent from the beginning. Uh, but it took them some time to sort this out, I think. And, and the reason it should have been apparent, I think, is this. When the Bible, when we see people um, joining themselves to the church and people of God, for example, in the Old Testament, as in the case of Ruth, they they have to leave behind everything. Right? They're they're really being asked to leave everything in some sense, and the reason for that is a change of religion. When you leave that religion. 
there is a severing of loyalty. You can't ever be really loyal to that family or nation as long as they remain at cross purposes. Right? Loyalty and the true profession of the same religion are, are, are the same thing, if you understand it. You can't divide the two. And that's why they're not going to do that anymore in Scotland at this point. And, by the way, he points out it is approved by Parliament the last of April in 1573. Uh, I, that I tracked that down. It was actually January 1573, uh, new style. But anyway, um, that is Act 47, Parliament 3, concerning the disobedient who should be received or sovereign Lord's mercy and pardon from 1573. And then ratified in Parliament 1587 and related Act 123, which is really 125 in Parliament 12 of King James VI. And that is uh, 1592, concerning who had not given confession of their faith shall not enjoy the benefit of pacification. With this addition, quote, they are bound to resist all treasonable uproars and hostilities raised against true religion, the king's majesty, and the true professors. Now, I don't want to get into it all right here. We're going to get into it a little bit in question five, but this is a major issue when we get to discussing how the Covenanters understand chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession and the king's majesty's person. And, and the Covenanters are going to say, look, we're only bound to respect the king's authority as he upholds the true religion. Right? We're not bound to him in an absolute fashion. And you can already see this. The, the, the idea that the true religion, the king's majesty, and true professors, these three things are being bound together. All right? So, question five. Is the true security of a nation bound up with its profession of the true religion and defense thereof? And the answer is yes. Look at Ezra 7.23. Verse 23. Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done to the house of the God of heaven, to watch and to be wrath against the realm of the king and his The scripture assures us that all nations shall serve Christ. Psalm 72, 10, and 11 again. And conversely, it issues stern warnings to those kingdoms which refuse to serve Christ by securing the prosperity of his church. Isaiah 60, verse 12. Then uh, we know then that um, there's some sense in which we have to see that genuine national security is bound up with the true religion. We have to remember that when you know when we're not professing the true religion, we're standing in a way to provoke God to judgment. So God threatens to bring judgments upon nations that fail to worship him as he's commanded. In Zechariah 14, 17 and 19. Will not come up of all the families of the earth and the Jerusalem to worship the 
the Lord of hosts, even upon that shall be no rain. And the man of Egypt shall not up until not, that have no rain, there shall be a plague, wherewith the Lord will smite and even that come not up to keep the peace of the tabernacles. It shall be the punishment, the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the peace of the tabernacles. So, <clears throat> there's a danger, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about, um, in, in essence, we're, we're, we are toying with the divine good pleasure when we are toying with uh, the true religion. And this is not acceptable. God is not accepting this. All right, so the two things are bound up together. We should perceive them as being bound up together. And we should um, respect that, that, that that is the case, that they're bound together. And that's what Scotland is concerned with here. Right? They, don't, they don't have, uh, they don't have, that secular view that that is um, uh, putting everything uh, that pertains to the civil realm over here that wall of separation between church and state they they see these things as intimately uh, connected and and influencing and having um, having a, a, a spiritual effect on one another. All right, so let's read the last section of this um, <clears throat> this legal part. Like as all lieges are bound to maintain the king's majesty's royal person and authority, the authority of parliaments, without the which neither any laws or lawful judicatories can be established. We want to look at Act 130 and 131 of Parliament 8 of King James VI, uh, and, and that's in 1584, the first is concerning the authority of the three estates of Parliament, uh, which is basically, uh, they're, they're, they're claiming that they have their own intrinsic jurisdiction. This is a, a pushback against the idea that Rome could have anything here. And then Act 131 is an act discharging all jurisdictions and judgments not approved by Parliament and all assemblies and conventions without our Sovereign Lord's special license and commandment. In other words, they're, again, they're granting that the Church of Scotland has a spiritual jurisdiction in Scotland, but they're denying the Church of Rome has a jurisdiction in Scotland. Um, and then they, they go to, and this is interesting, Parliament 3 of King James I. Now, this is uh, Act 48 of Parliament 3. This is from March of 1425. It's actually 1426 in the new uh, the new style. And it's March, um, and um, so there's there are a lot of calendrical uh, calculations I had to correct here as I went through. But this is the one, and this is this Act 48. This goes back to 1426 of the laws, that none be but the king's laws. So what they're asserting is, you know, this idea 
that they are excluding the Pope's jurisdiction, this actually is not something unique to the Reformation, but Scotland had already asserted that the king had supreme, the Scottish king had supreme jurisdiction in all civil affairs in Scotland. Right? And it's, it's there in, in Act 48 of Parliament 3 of, of James I. Now, the reason for this, of course, is we're dealing, a lot of these are under James VI. This is going back, you know, this is his great-great-great-grandfather. Had a couple of greats in there. Right, and then they point to Act 79, Parliament 6 of King James IV, another great-great-grandfather of, of James. Uh, and this is from 1504, concerning the law of the land. And again, this is an assertion of the right of the Scottish king in Scotland. And so this takes precedent over the you know any popish claims. Uh, and they say it's repeated in the Act 131, Parliament 8 of, J of uh, James VI. Right? The, 1584, an act discharging all jurisdictions and judgments not approved by Parliament. All acts and conventions without our sovereign Lord's special license and commandment. So again, what, what's the point? James in 1584 is not even asserting something different than his great-great-grandfathers have already asserted. Rome doesn't have this jurisdiction. They never had a just claim. So what they're doing to correct all of this is actually something that stems from a national assertion predating the Reformation. Right, from a civil point of view. Which if they be innovated and prejudged, quote, the commission concerning the union of the two kingdoms of Scotland and England, which is the sole act of the 17th Parliament of James VI, uh, and that was in 1604, Commission for the Union. Uh, that was when when he becomes the unitary crown. But look what it declares. It declares um, that such confusion would ensue as this realm could no more be a free monarchy because of the fundamental laws, ancient privileges, um, offices and liberties of this kingdom, not only the princely authority of his majesty's royal descent hath been these many ages maintained, but also the people's security of their lands, livings, rights, offices, liberties, and dignities preserved. Therefore, for the preservation of the said true religion, laws, and liberties of this kingdom, it is statuted by the Eighth Act of Parliament the First, 1567, concerning the king's oath to be given at his coronation, uh, and that that states that when the, the king takes an oath to be the king, he has to adopt the true religion. doesn't have a right to be of a different religion than the people. It's repeated in the 99th Act of Parliament 7, um, the ratification of the liberty of the true church of God and religion. Um, and it's ratified the 23rd Act, of Parliament 11, which is 1587, ratification of the true liberty of the church again. 
and the the uh, 114th Act of Parliament 12, sexually 116, 1592, the Act for Abolishing of Acts Contrary to the True Religion, and finally, the fourth Act of the First Parliament of King James I, which is the ratification of Acts Touching Religion, 1633. And they quote from it, right, that all kings and princes at their coronation and reception of their princely authority shall make their faithful promise by their solemn oath in the presence of the eternal God that in during the whole time of their lives they shall serve the same eternal God to the uttermost of their power according as he is required in his most holy word contained in the Old and New Testament. And according to the same word shall maintain the true religion of Christ Jesus, the preaching of his holy word, the due and right ministration of the sacraments now re received and preached within this realm according to the confession of faith immediately preceding. That's the 1560 confession. And shall abolish and gain stand all false religion contrary to the same. And shall rule the people committed to their charge according to the will and command of God revealed this foresaid word and according to the laudable laws and constitutions received in this realm no wise repugnant to the said will of the eternal God. And shall procure to the utmost of their, uttermost of their power the church of God and the whole Christian people true and perfect peace in all time coming that they shall be careful to root out of their empire all heretics and enemies of the, to the true worship of God who shall be convicted by the true church of God of the foresaid crimes, unquote. And they finish by saying, which was also observed by his majesty at his coronation in Edinburgh, 1633, as may be seen in the order of the coronation. And I put a quote from the coronation where you can see that Charles actually does do that. And so I, I um, included that in a footnote for you. So the final question we're going to look at is how are the true liberties of the church and kingdom secured by ecclesiastical establishments and right constitutions? Right, so scriptures are clear that righteousness, not wickedness, is necessary to establishment. Look at Proverbs 12, 3. Proverbs 12, verse 3. Indeed, that which is true, the truth, is that alone which abides the passage of time. Proverbs twelve nineteen. And thus we're told the very throne of the king is established by the righteousness of truth. Right? Truth and righteousness are really the same thing. Righteousness is rightness. Right? Look at Proverbs sixteen twelve. So true liberty, then, is the power to serve God without fear of condemnation, being freed from the dominion of sin. It's not the power to sin, it's actually the freedom from sin. Look at 2 Peter 2.19. 2 Peter 2.19. Well, they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for if whom man is overcome, of the same as he brought in bondage. <clears throat> so we know then that the power of true religion is necessary, not only to the preservation of the church, look at Hebrews 13, 9, 
verse 9. Not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. But also uh, to the upholding of the throne. Isaiah 9, 7. Okay, so government, government, genuine, like lawful exercise of government requires truth, first of all. Because without truth, you won't have righteousness. You can't. You need truth to have righteousness, right? To have equity. There has to be truth. Moreover, rejection of the truth opens the possibility of ever-increasing arbitrary exercises of government. Because once things are made relative, they are arbitrary. James 1.8. Yeah, so this is a problem with toleration. Right? This is a problem with opening your, the the magistrate up to uh, defending more than the true religion. You are asking him to maintain what is true and not true at the same time. And to the extent that he's going to uphold what is not true, that he will support or defend what is not true, He's double-minded. He's unstable. There will be an arbitrary exercise. And, and by the way, the less truth and true religion is being upheld by a government, the more arbitrary it will become, won't it? Right? Because the fact is, when truth is relative, that's the same as saying it's arbitrary. So one day I defend this truth, and then the next day I defend that. The problem is the double-minded seek to serve more than one master. Look at Matthew 6.24. Matthew 6.24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and man them. Right. And so when that happens, what, what do they do? They fall down into every kind of abomination before God. Look at 2 Kings 17, 33, and 41. contrast to that, the people of God are called upon to fix upon what is right and true. 1 Kings 18.21 Verse 21 And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long all ye between the two nations? Will God follow him? But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Right. So, it's necessary, if you want to have a stable, righteous, or just, or equitable government, actually necessary, number one, that they adopt the truth, number two, that they don't try to defend 
something other than the truth at the same time. Because to the extent that they believe that truth is relative, their government necessarily will reflect that. It will be arbitrary. They're double-minded, they're unstable, it won't be good. Can't depend on that. Therefore, when right constitutions are adopted and arbitrary government is rejected, true liberties are secured to the church. So look at Acts 16.5. And the genuine liberty of the people prevails within the nation. Amos 515. 515. Love the good and establish judgment in the day. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. Yeah, so this is how, uh, and this is why the church does the same thing. You know, in Acts 15, we, we see them uh, determining points of controversy. Why? Well, because they need to come to the truth. And when they do, we see in Acts 16, the churches are established by that. Right? They're, they're made firm in their belief. This is why confessions and creeds are good things for the church. They help to establish you in what is true. It helps to focus your attention on what is certain and sure. And the same goes for the nation. Right? So it's a good thing for a nation, for a chief magistrate to not only to recognize, but to support and establish the true religion. Now, this we know is true because it's confirmed by Isaiah, speaking of the New Testament era, when it said the Gentile nations shall become churches even as the Jews. Look at Isaiah 55, 5. 55, verse 5. We'll call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that do not thee shall run unto thee, because of the Lord thy God, and for the Lord of Israel, for thee. Yeah, a nation which thou hast not known, a nation that hasn't known thee. <clears throat> He's talking about the Gentile nations. How is it that the expression of knowing the true God uh, was displayed in Israel. Was there arbitrary government? Was there a toleration for false religion? Or did they establish the true religion? And did the magistrates' judgments, were they required to reflect that in, in uh, their, their civil enactments? Under the New Testament, then, God calls to the nations, and a nation's proper response is to establish the true church as its blessing. Look at Micah 4, 2-4. Micah 4, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. They shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. 
And so God, under the New Testament, is calling you all the nations, and what their response, the proper response, would be to do exactly what we see uh, Moses doing in Israel, right? Which is establishing the true religion. For the transfer of the national church state of the Jews, together with the covenant relation, is exactly what's being promised to the Gentiles. We get Isaiah 35, 1 and 2, and Zechariah 2, 11. Yeah, so the, when, when Isaiah says the wilderness is a solitary place, the desert shall rejoice. He's talking about the Gentile nations, right? They're going to do what? They're going to bloom and they're going to be like Israel. What was Israel like? Right? Did they? Was it a, a state where they had this voluntary relation with the church? No, not at all. Right? There were very clear rules, very clear guidelines. So the result is this: that the throne is brought into a connection with the church, designed to secure its establishment while preserving genuine liberty. Look at Proverbs twenty-five five and John eight thirty-two. Right. The truth, knowing the truth, living the truth is actually true freedom. You know, so when people hear what we're, we're saying here, what what's going on uh, in, in the covenant, and, and even they hear these acts of parliament, uh, if you're not a believer, if you are um, in, in opposition to the true religion, it's going to sound foreboding. But the idea is actually to establish true freedom, true bounds of freedom. Right? It's not you're not free when you're sinning, when you're disobeying. You're free when you are obedient. And so there's there's actually a help and there's an encouragement in such a society. Right? The church is going to be encouraging this before the magistrate. The magistrate is um, going to be sort of the stick to the to the uh, church's carrot. Uh, but at the same time, you know, as harsh as a lot of these acts might sound, especially if we were to go into all of them, when we look at their actual implementation, uh, the, the fact is that there were, I, I, I think, uh, maybe uh, a handful of cases where people were actually put to death, and I'm not sure that it goes beyond the number that you can count on one hand. Uh, on the other hand, uh, when it came to fining and things like that, um, <clears throat> you know, these things were probably a little bit more widespread. But again, the key with any kind of law 
is when people know you're serious about enforcing it, they're much more serious about heeding it, right? So um, when they knew and they lived at a time when magistrates didn't just pass laws but enforce them, uh, they they knew that it would be um, it would be very undesirable in most cases to go against these things. It'd be better just to get up and leave, right? But the fact is that uh, Scotland is not noted for uh, persecution or anything else, despite having all these laws. And I think the reason is because there was no arbitrary enforcement, you know, and they did begin with admonitions and they did instruct people and they tried to bring people along, but they made it clear that behind all of this, um, the, the magistrate was going to exercise coercion if necessary. All right. So anyway, this is the, the historical testimony section. Um, and it's designed really to show you that there is ample um, material for understanding the intention and the actual implementation of the covenant at, at a period of time when they were um, moving in a reforming direction. And this is what, in the renewal, the covenanters of 1638 are going to try to um, get everyone to move back in that direction. That's that's really the impulse. Uh, you may remember uh, that the uh, story of Jenny Geddes uh, and and throwing the um, the stool in 1637 when they came and tried to introduce the uh, the prayer book into uh, the church at St Giles in Edinburgh, and it didn't go over well. Uh, Jenny Geddes threw a stool at the guy who started reading from it, and uh, it, it started a riot, and they immediately pulled back. And by the following year, they were renewing the covenant with the additions that we looked at tonight and the additions we're going to look at, Lord willing, next time.